Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night, and he took his revenge. A revenge that he'll continue to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again. And by now, I guess you all know... We are the first to return here. Five years. Five long years he's been dormant, and he's hungry. Jason's out there, watching, always on the prowl for intruders, waiting to kill, waiting to devour, thirsty for young blood. That's right, listeners. We are discussing with spoilers of plenty, the 1981 horror sequel, Friday the 13th, Part 2, produced by Georgetown Productions, Inc., Distributed by Paramount Pictures, it stars Amy Steele, John Fury, and Stu Charno. Directed by Steve Miner, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 27 minutes. This is our second film of our Splatter Cinema Month, where all the movies we discuss in the month of October are horror movies. Check out The Slumber Party Massacre if you missed last week's episode. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to camp, here's even more heart-pounding terror. Five years after the horrible bloodbath at Camp Crystal Lake, all that remains is the legend of Jason Voorhees and his demented mother, who had murdered seven camp counselors. At a nearby summer camp, the new counselors are unconcerned about the warnings to stay away from the infamous site. Carefree, the young people roam the area, not sensing the ominous lurking presence. One by one, they are attacked and brutally slaughtered. Suspense and screams abound in this compelling chiller. Friday the 13th, Part 2 Friday the 13th, part two. So that was what's on the box. Yeah, spoiler alert, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. The synopsis gives everything away. But that's okay. I think we could pretty much expect what was going to happen regardless. Yeah, I think so. All right, so let's move on to our earliest memories. What are our earliest memories of this movie? Jason, start us off. All right, Bill Bant, the fact is that I have nothing for this. (laughs) What? I always make something up. I really want to say I've seen bits and pieces here and there, but I honestly couldn't say for sure. I have almost no concrete recollection of seeing this film. The only thing I might be able to say is that it might be the first time I was really cognizant of the horror sequel. Obviously, horror sequels had occurred before this, And I actually did a little research, and it appears that the first horror film sequel that is officially recognized is The Bride of Frankenstein from, I believe, 1935. But I realized at a young age, seeing the VHS box of this in in the uh, blockbuster or local video store, that these stories could have more chapters and live on forever because horror never dies. That's uh, really all I got, Bill Bant. So what are your earliest memories of Friday the 13th Part 2 from 1981, just a year after Part 1? I know with the Friday the 13th series, just growing up in the 80s, new movie every year. We just knew that was going on. And it 
would be a while until I finally got to see any of these. But I always remember those friends that would brag about watching these, and they were always more interested yeah. in the kills, uh, surprising than the nudity. But like most of these Friday the 13th movies, it was a cable watch, late night cable watch. I saw all these out of order. So I do remember when I finally saw this one, I think I was surprised that Jason did not have the hockey mask because I just assumed he had it from the get-go. And then even learning that he wasn't the killer in the first one, too. So I'm not sure when I saw this in the grand scheme of things, but it definitely was late night. And it was probably maybe the fourth or fifth one that I had seen at that point. But I do remember watching a Friday 13th marathon later on and just becoming obsessed with the Friday 13th timeline. Jason, I actually sat down once when I was watching these. I think it was like the first eight movies. I was watching them all back to back and just writing out the timeline of when all these happen. Because when we talked about the first Friday the 13th on the show, so it takes place on June 13th, 1979, which actually should have been July 13th, 1979, because there was no Friday the 13th in June. It wasn't July. Got it. So, so that movie came out in 1980. It takes place in 1979. So now we have Friday the 13th part two which takes five years later. This movie came out in 1981, but according to the movie, this happens in 1984. Right, that's right. Then we have part three, which is the 3D, which comes out in 1982, but that actually takes place the next day. So, okay, so we're only two years behind. Then we have part four, which is supposed to be the end, but it ended up not being the end. That plays the day after that. So two, three, and four take place in three consecutive days. Four comes out in 84. So now we're finally caught up. But then we had Tommy Jarvis, who was played by Corey Feldman. We jump to the new beginning and we jump ahead. We do another time jump because in 85, we meet Tommy again as a teenager in the halfway house. So that movie takes place in the future in either 88 or 89. And then you even do another jump into part six because now even Tommy's older. So I I was just really fascinated by the timeline of the friday the 13th movies not that anyone really cares but to me it was just interesting at the time sorry i got into that but you know how i am obsessed with time and stuff for with movies i would say when it comes to friday the 13th part two though uh, i think this one is on the lower end of rewatches just because the availability of the movie on cable just seemed less than the other films in this franchise but I'll be honest, if it comes on, I will watch parts of it or depending on where it is, if it's close to the end, I will watch the ending of it. But just in recollection terms, I just remember the beginning and I remember the end and everything mm-hmm. else in the middle is just a jumbled mess. Right. But going back to this one, I remembered more than I thought, but there was definitely a lot of stuff that I didn't remember. Hopefully, you know, we'll cover all these in the 80s at some point. But that's my earliest memories of part two. Great stuff, man. Couldn't agree more about looking at the timeline because I did a little bit of that myself, but I was digging into the lore and going even further back upon reading the Wikipedia page for this particular film. It just sent me down a rabbit hole and I was just trying to figure out the logic of this, which is ridiculous for a type of film like this. But like you are fascinated by the time periods that and how it all unfolds in a logic timeline I always am fascinated, as I'm sure you are as well, the actual lore in the story. I'm just trying to make sense of the legend of Jason Voorhees, and I've got a lot of questions, which we'll get into. But it is funny thinking about when you talk about 
how memorable the film is because that's uh, an issue I had with this overall, which I'll touch upon. However, looking at the box itself, I mean, we do the what's on the box segment, but the actual front of the box, the image is somewhat similar to the original film's VHS box, but this time it's just the very simplistic kind of chalk outline, if you will, of Jason holding the bloody axe, which I find problematic because if I'm not mistaken, Bill Bant, he does not use an axe in this film. Yeah, unless he killed Terry off screen. Because we don't know how she, yeah, she dies exactly. It's just kind of funny. There's uh, there's some issues there. But are you ready to get back to Camp Crystal Lake, a.k.a. Camp Blood? Or should I say more specifically, Camp, we don't know what the name of it is at all? Because <laughs> it's never named in the film. Yeah, it's more of a training camp, actually, a counselor training camp than it is an actual camp camp. Right. But yeah, let's get into it. Initial thoughts. What are your initial thoughts of Friday the 13th Part 2? Yeah, I'm, I'm just calling it Camp Adjacent. I like that. Yeah, so let's start with an initial mention of our director, Steve Miner, who makes his directorial debut with this film. And this is straight from IMDb. Uh, before he became a director, Miner was working as an editor for the one and only Wes Craven, as well as Sean S. Cunningham, the director of Chapter One, the original Friday the 13th. Uh, so he was helping them out as an editor on several occasions, uh, one occasion being the horror film The Last House on the Left way back when in 1972. Steve Miner would work for uh, Sean S. Cunningham in 1980 on the first chapter, Friday the 13th in 1980, as an associate producer. The following year, he was hired to direct the sequels, this one, part two, and then he does direct part three in 1982. Minor also went on to direct the horror film House in 1985, the comedy Soul Man from 1986. You don't see that one around <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Ooh. Kind of tough. Uh, he did go on to do Warlock in 89 and then moved on to the a more serious drama Forever Young, which I'm a fan of. Mel Gibson. I forgot about that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember watching it a few times back when in 1992. He would return to comedy with Rick Moranis and Tom Arnold in a movie called Big Bully in 96. And then he returns to horror directing the very successful Halloween H2O 20 years later in 98. And I love on IMDb, it says then he, he does the underwater comedy thriller Lake Placid in 99, which has gone on to become quite the cult classic. That is oh, a yeah. very, very popular film. It's pretty darn entertaining. I think mainly probably because of the comic stylings and vulgarity of one, uh, is it Betty White? Yes. She's amazing in that. He also has directed TV pilots for shows including The Wonder Years and Dawson's Creek. How about that? All right, moving on into my real initial thoughts here of Friday the 13th, Part 2. It was a funny thing, Bill Bant, because I wanted to refresh my memory as to where we had left off with Chapter 1, because we had watched it recently for our podcast, and I wanted to go back and see if that ending still scared me, having watched it so recently. And it still gives me chills when young Jason pops out of the lake to attack Alice in her canoe in the midst of her nightmare. But I needed to go back even a little bit further, a few minutes further, just to watch what had happened with Pamela Voorhees, Mrs. Voorhees, Jason's mother, when she makes the reveal that she, in fact, is the killer. 
and is then attacking young Alice. And I just wanted to get a, a feel for, you know, exact, you know, exactly where we left off and where we were headed. So I then crank up part two. And funny thing is, part two literally starts with Alice having another nightmare. And it's an entire flashback of the whole sequence from the finale of chapter one. So I got to watch it twice. And it's funny because, yes, the first six minutes of this hour and 27 minute film are a flashback, the nightmare within a nightmare, technically. So I was like, okay, well, this is going to be a quick watch. We just got a refresher course for the first six minutes of this film. Now we got about an hour and 20 minutes left. This is going to be a short movie. And it was. It was a quick watch. I thought it was interesting, yeah, that the actual opening of this film is, we see just the lower half of, like, I think is a, what is a young boy skipping along a street at night in the middle of a neighborhood and it's a young boy named Jesse. He's playing outside while singing Itsy Bitsy Spider. We don't see his face, as I mentioned. And then we hear a voice off screen, I'm assuming his mom, call him inside, saying, Jesse, come inside. And then the music kicks in. We hear the high strings, the high-pitched strings. We see the boots of a man following him toward a house whilst hearing the classic, which is great. But I'm still confused as to why we saw that little bit of an opening in the first place it was like because i was i was hoping for a callback to that at some point like who is this little kid skipping along singing itsy bitsy spider and why are we then assuming that it's jason the killer as we see his boots which we see several times in this movie lots of boots boots on the ground as i call it following this kid towards this house i was like is that going to come back into play but it doesn't that's okay we just know that he's approaching the house then which we learn is alice's new residence uh, which leads to a great cold open. Love the cold open. And then following the cold open, which does take its time. Speaking of not much time to be had in this film, that cold open takes a while. We get to the great title card, the Friday the 13th. It's very similar to the first film. Comes zooming into your face. And then it explodes part two, which was very reminiscent of Die Hard for me. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, uh, or Die Hard is reminiscent of this. Great. Die Hard, Die Harder. But this is Friday the 13th. And then we go to our protagonists. Cut to the present where we have our couple, Jeff and Sandra, that roll into town, which I assume is Crystal Lake. This is great. You know, well, I don't have to assume because it just felt good. It felt good. We're returning to grounds where we've been before. It's, it's familiar territory. And we see the package store. We see the Exxon gas station. We're like, oh, this is familiar. They're back. We're back. Awesome. And we get crazy Ralph who shows up. Okay, the old man is back. <laughs> the creepy old man I was like, heck yeah, man. We're getting off to a great start in this movie. I'll be honest, Bill Band, I was really excited. But, uh, you know, it's we're already almost 20 minutes into an hour and 27 minute for movie. But it's like, cool. I'm, I'm digging this setup. More of the same. Yeah, I love the first movie. So give me more of that. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead to my initial thought of the shot, or I should say, Initial appearance of Terry. Ah, Terry. I love you, Terry. Kirsten Baker. Kirsten Baker, the actress. Shout out to Kirsten, playing the role of Terry. She appears in her short shorts, her holy shit short jean shorts. And her cut-off Mickey Mouse t-shirt. I didn't know until recently. It's somewhat of an iconic image. She's gorgeous. Kirsten Baker, the actress that plays the character of Terry, is gorgeous. Now, we see her as one of these camp counselors in training because we learn quickly in this film that the setup is that 
a group of young teenagers is gathering at this camp, which is adjacent to Camp Crystal Lake. And they are gathering at this location, this particular camp, to engage in counselor training for upcoming summer camps. So Terry is one of these young teenagers who's going to be amongst the group of trainees. And we understand that they've been camp counselors before. Let's just say this is kind of a refresher course for these kids led by Paul. But again, the introduction of Terry here in this shot, she's just gorgeous. I mean, we see her midriff. She's just beautiful. And, and this is a funny tangent, Bill Bant, but I recently, before even watching this film, and I, as I mentioned, haven't seen this film in its entirety, at least before, I'm just surfing the net. And as we all know now, when we're on random websites, we get bombarded by pop-ups. And for me in particular, I'll get a lot of pop-ups regarding films, which makes complete sense because I'm always researching movies. And one of the pop-ups is often something like an image of a very attractive woman. And it says, these images from these movies were banned. Check it out. And it's a total uh, catfish thing. But that's the image on this particular pop-up is always of Kirsten Baker. Oh, then I watch this movie. I'm like, oh, wait, that's it. That's her. That's from this. Is, that, that shot is from this movie. So who knew? I love that once they're engaged in their training session, Paul is leading the way. He's the camp counselor of the camp counselors. And he is doing his safety breakdown, his safety spiel, if you will. And he says, okay, Look, a few words about safety. Axes, knives, lanterns, saws, they can all be trouble. Their misuse is the main cause of camp accidents. Foreshadowing anyone? <laughs> it couldn't be more obvious. Here's a question for you and an initial thought also, Bill Bant. Was everybody just in fantastic shape back in the early 80s? Oh, yeah. This is one of the better looking casts they've had in these movies. No doubt about it. You just fast forward to the scene down by the beach. I paired them off, actually, as couples. So we have Jeff and Sandra, we have Terry and Scott, we have Vicky and Mark, and we have Paul and Ginny. Paul is the leader, and Ginny is his assistant. But they're like in bikinis and short jean shorts, and we even have the one African-American guy that we never really get to know or his character's name at all, but he's ripped. They're all like thin, fit. They've been doing like CrossFit training. They've all got abs. The girls in the bikinis are gorgeous. I'm like, what the heck, man? This is, where was I? Yeah, that was great. Uh, so very attractive cast, as Bill mentioned. Spoiler alert. Here's my hot take. Rest in peace. R.I.P. Muffin the dog, who I, I figured suffered the worst fate of any other victim in this film. It seemed to be the goriest kill, in my opinion. Or did Muffin really die? We will discuss. Here's a list of bad jokes in this movie. A bear and rabbit are taking a shit in the woods, and the bear says to the rabbit, hey, are you worried about getting shit on your fur? And the rabbit says, no, and the bear goes, he wipes his ass with the rabbit. I'm paraphrasing these jokes, but uh, i just making a point that there's a lot of terrible jokes in this. What's uh, What goes 100 miles an hour and is red all over? A frog in a, a blender? What's brown and sits on top of a piano? Beethoven's last movement? Jesus. Awful. We get these back-to-back -back jokes, a couple of them from Ted, our beloved Ted character, Stu Charno, the actor. Man, I was like, is this movie supposed to be a comedy? A very bad comedy? Here's another spoiler alert. Rest in peace. Crazy Ralph, who I already mentioned. Sad to see the old man go. Crazy Ralph, played by the great Walt Gorney. Death by barbed wire choking against a tree. Or garroted. Garroted. Excuse me, I'm trying to pronounce this right. Garrot. He was garroted. 
Bill, unfortunately, this is a term I just learned. I didn't want to learn, but I did a deep dive on this. Something I learned from Wikipedia, garroted. It means when you're basically choked by a particular tool against a particular object and don't, just don't. I know you might have some morbid curiosity. Don't look it up, but I learned a new word for this podcast, garrot or garroted. Here's my issues with the name Ginny. Ginny is our really our female lead protagonist and sexual partner of Paul, our camp counselor leader. And Ginny, well, I'm just going to take issue with the name Ginny real quick. Just choose either Jenny or Gina. That's all I'm saying. Whenever I have to say Ginny, I have to think about pronouncing it and I think about it too much. I'm not a big fan of the name Ginny. Sorry, all the Ginnies out there. Here's an initial thought. Terry, our hot girl, uh, she's walking off by herself, taking a swim by herself at night in a particular scene, and she wins my big balls or grande cojones horror movie award. Never in a million years would I ever do that. Not at night, not in the middle of the woods, in a cabin in the woods, a camp in the woods, not when there's a, a legend of a killer in the forest going around. I don't know. No, but hey, I'll, I give it up to Terry. And the fact that we get a little bit of a Jaws theme that sneaks into the score while Terry is doing a little skinny dipping. I know, Bill, you must have picked up on that. I love the fact that at the very end, I'm just going to throw the call this out. We have, a, a again, spoiler, a traumatized Ginny being taken away by ambulance. And I absolutely laughed out loud because the ambulance is leaving after they put her on a gurney and they put her in the back. The ambulance is driving off without the EMT being able to close the door behind. <laughs> He's really struggling to close the door. And it was like they only could, they had one take to do it. And the poor guy, the extra, the guy that was playing the EMT was like, can you not drive off before I close the door? Overall impressions, watching this as an adult with no nostalgic attachment, unfortunately, I thought it was just all right, dog. It was just okay. I, I go into it full, full knowledge of the genre and the campiness. So I wasn't expecting The Godfather, but I do like a halfway decent story with some background and lore. We do get the beginning of the legend of Jason Voorhees, which is great. But then it's just kind of by the numbers stalker slasher film for an hour or so. And I did feel some of the kills had a flair, a bit of inventiveness or even a twist on the kills from the first movie. But overall, I felt like it was holding back a little bit the entire time. And that may be due to the issue of having to get an R rating, which we might touch on a little later and trivia and our research, but it's still fun. I mean, it's a quick watch for sure. I wasn't bored. It had some real unintentional humor and I had fun watching how dated it is, but uh, it really did leave me with some questions. I did really like seeing Jason's first appearance in this film, his visage with the burlap sack covering his head. Definitely pretty creepy with the one eye hole. And that shot of his actual face at the end was definitely creepy. But then again, I was never really scared at any point. I feel like the only real scare is in the cold open. And I'll, I'll touch on that later. Overall, it was kind of meh for me with some highlights. Had I seen it as a kid, it probably would have given me some nightmares. But watching it now, I just I just know too much as an adult. So those are my initial thoughts. What about you, Bill Bant? Yeah, so just two things based on what you said with your initial thoughts. The first one was, you know, the opening scene, we see the boy in the street. And right away, the first thing that went to my head was like, oh, my God, it's the opening scene of It. And it's the boy, all he needs is the paper boat. I had to look up when it was written just to make sure it was an homage. I'm like, I'm pretty sure the book had come after the movie. And I was right. The book came out in 86. So part of me is like, did Stephen King watch this and go, hey, 
that's a cool image. I'm going to use that for my opening scene of it. And if you don't remember the opening scene of it, as little boy Georgie has a paper boat and goes down the drain, and that's where unfortunately right. he meets his demise with it. Good call. It's a good call, man. I thought maybe it was going to be an origin story of Jason. Like, oh, we're getting we're going to a young version of Jason, but not not the case. But that's a good call. Yeah, that's a good one too. And then the second thing, of course, Kirsten Baker in her cut off Mickey Mouse shirt. And the two things that were interesting was one, I'm sure Disney was very happy to see that their shirt was being used in this movie. And I wonder if they somehow contacted Paramount about that because Disney, of course, is very particular about its trademark. But then it also made me think about how many times have we watched movies and you don't see trademarks of anything. Like I always laugh when I watch the Walking Dead series. You don't see anyone walking around in a football, the favorite football team jersey or a Nike shirt or any of that kind of stuff. Nothing's logoed. Mm hmm. And even notice in, in this movie, too, when they wear jersey, it's generic. It's never anything that they'd have to pay something. So the fact that, that she was wearing a Mickey Mouse T-shirt, I couldn't believe that. That was just a big surprise. She looked great in it, but the, the fact that she got away with it was impressive. Mm-hmm. That was just some of the things I just wanted to speak about, about what you said. As for my initial thoughts, so doing the research for this movie... So this wasn't supposed to be originally a direct sequel. They were going to try to do an anthology. Everything was going to be a different story. And they would just crank these movies out every year. Now we saw that Halloween had tried to do this with Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. And everybody hated it. But of course this came out before Halloween 3. And luckily they realized not to go in that direction. So for a sequel where okay, all you have left is your final girl. You have a 12 year old boy. And your killer got killed. I thought they actually did a pretty good job of continuing the story. Because my thought was... Okay, so at the end of one, we have the scene with Alice in the boat. And then she gets attacked by Jason. She wakes up in the hospital. She asks where the boy is. The police are like, all right, there was no boy. I don't know what you're talking about. And then she goes, oh, he's still out there. But, of course, five years later, we have this grown man... So is it the same person? Is it a different person? So my thought is, is she definitely had a dream, the Jason sequence. That it was probably she was on the boat. The police came. She was sleeping. She has the dream about the boy Jason attacking her, falls off the boat, and then they go rescue her, and she ends up in the hospital. So it makes sense because the police say, we, luckily we found you when we did because you would have drowned. So it's like, okay, that makes sense. And then let's flash forward this five years later. Well, technically, the movie starts two months later because the movie actually starts with Jason getting his revenge on Alice for killing his mom. A lot of that does not make sense. It's A, how does Jason find Alice? B, why did Jason never come to his mom to begin with to say I'm alive? I have a whole, I wrote a whole thing on it. There's a lot of weird things there. But the fact that they were able to decide, okay, we're going to use this kid character from the first movie have him as a grown-up, and he's just going to be the killer in the other movies. I mean, it's loose, but I thought it was a good continuation of the story. And that's what I... It's a slasher film. I mean, you're basically going there to watch people get murdered and random boobs. Let's admit it. Right, yes. So the fact that they're, they're actually kind of stringing a story along that kind of makes sense, I thought was interesting. And the fact that they're not actually at Crystal Lake. They're at adjacent property next to it. And it's been abandoned the whole time. People have been staying away from it. 
they're kind of bummed even people are even going there to do this counseling training. I thought it worked. It, it did work for me. I, I was fine with that. So, yeah, it was weird not knowing. Like, if I was watching this for the first time, had only seen Friday the 13th, and then this character's walking around killing any, everyone, that would make no sense to me that it was Jason. I would be clueless on that. I'm like, who, all right, who's this random guy going around killing? What's, how's this all tie in with the first movie, even though we do, we do have the camp scene? Mm-hmm. Why would it be Jason? But I think I was more impressed that they actually kind of tried to tell a story in this than just, we're just going to repeat exactly what happened in the first one. I mean, it is almost kind of a remake of the first one, but at least they put their little spin on it. I liked how they separated the camp because you had so many counselors. You're like, man, Chase is going to kill all these people. But the right. fact they did like that one last night, half the people went in a town party, and then just a bunch stayed behind. In essence, that could have set up the third part because then the other half of those counselors come back after you know everything happened. They're trying to clean up, and then you find out Jason's still alive and went off the second half of the camp. So I did like that too. So I, mm-hmm. I thought mm-hmm. it was kind of smart. I, I I need to watch three again to make sure that I I'm like oh that actually was what the third was. But it does take place the next day. But I certainly know it's not the same actors. So it's a slasher film. You're not supposed to get much out of it, but story wise. I'll applaud them for the attempt. Heck yeah, man. That's great stuff. I'm so glad because you kind of opened the door for me and it was something I was going to address maybe in the complaints department, but I'll just go over it very quickly right now. And it is reviewing the lore, just going into the story, because I agree with you. I actually do like this premise and we do know, I think we can firmly say that at the end of the first film, Friday the 13th, part one, that it is a nightmare that Alice has when the boy version of Jason Voorhees pops out of the lake and tackles her on the boat because we are assuming that he had drowned and died. Was he 12? Is that the the age that he's been given? I put 10. I was just going, let's go with 10 years old just to make yeah, the numbers. I don't remember the actual age. So either way, he was very young, but that his body had re, you know been laying at the bottom of the lake and then in her nightmare comes to the surface and attacks her. So Boom. There we go. Nightmare ends. She wakes up. And that's why she says at the end of the film, well, then he's still down there. The boy is still down there if they didn't find him. Then cut to this film. And so in looking at Wikipedia, it says that Jason Voorhees drowned in Crystal Lake in 1957 and his crazed mother, Pamela Voorhees, then murdered two counselors in 1958. So then we cut to 1979 when the first film takes place and Mrs. Voorhees goes on her killing spree, killing seven camp counselors. Now, if Jason had somehow survived the drowning, at which time we will say he was 10 years old back in 1957, he now in 1979 would be approximately 32 years old. And then probably around 33 or no, actually, if you add four, he'd be around 36 years old. Here when in 1984, when the events of part two are supposed to occur. So as you touched on, Bill, the big question here is if he had survived the drowning, we're supposed to believe that he lived in the woods of Camp Crystal Lake for the past 22 years, or at this point now it's 26 years. And for some unknown reason, he had allowed his mother to live on for those 22 years between 57 and 79, thinking that he was dead. And he remained in the forest for 22 years, simply watching the events unfold from a distance 
And thus, when he witnesses his mother's demise in 79, when Alice decapitates her, it sets him off on this present killing spree and future sprees, never being able to satisfy his thirst for revenge. So I can buy that he may have somehow survived with the drowning. We can buy the supernatural aspects of his revival in the future films. However, the biggest question is really if he was hanging out in the woods for 22 years plus between 1957 and 1959, how was he doing it without anyone knowing really? Or did the legend grow from random sightings of him over that time? Or were there sightings? And if there were sightings, then wouldn't Mrs. Voorhees would have caught wind of that and tried to find him? So that's the real question. Yeah, because it's a good question. If he supposedly drowns in 57. Right. The camp's open again in 58. The murders Mm -hmm. take place. So supposedly they close the camp. Right. After that, don't open it again until 79. Correct. So it's possible. But I mean, from being like a 10, 12-year-old, if he was 18 when he drowned, I think it would make more sense that he could have survived while that camp was closed that whole time. Yeah. You use the camp as a shelter. You know, there's some supplies in there, but being that young and, I mean, technically it sounded like he had special needs. Well, that was another aspect I was going to touch on later, too, is exactly how, because we know he looks a certain way. And so if he clearly survived the drowning, so was it as a result of only being partially drowned and surviving that he suffered from brain damage as a result, but he obviously has some physical deformities, and how did that occur? Right. Was that a result of a particular disease that he suffered from? Because in the research, I even found that he may have had, I believe, his Proteus syndrome, just like the elephant man. Elephant man, correct. Yeah. So that's a theory for this fiction. Which you could have and still be, yeah, mentally fine. Mm -hmm. And then something happens after the drowning. And I thought it would be interesting if there were, if you came up with an idea of, and I am definitely, I'm doing some writing here on my own here, but if someone had actually did rescue him somehow from the lake unbeknownst to his mother and took care of him, because like you said, he's only 10 or 12 years old, if that, and somebody found him as he was only partially drowned, like, and then resuscitated him and like raised him in the forest for some time. Yeah, that's totally possible. And kept him basically like a recluse. Right. That would be like, you could do a really cool side story, origin story going down that path right and that person just dies right now he's on his own Mm -hmm. so there is yeah there's a little bit of possibility (laughs) there's a little bit of possibility but the thing is you're right though bill you're right because the premise is cool because it makes us do this just the fact that we're talking about it and trying to figure it out how could this be plausible instead of just going with the campiness of it all the exaggerated nature of it all which is what we're supposed to do really it's still fun to kind of try to, to justify it. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's move into uh, favorite scenes or moments. What are some of favorite scenes and moments from Friday the 13th? Part two. <laughs> I had to do that once. Hey, man, I'm starting right with the beginning. That's my first favorite scene. This is where I said this is actually my favorite scare uh, <laughs> in the movie. And it has nothing to do with Jason. So we did get that brief opening with a little boy skipping down the street at night in a neighborhood of sorts. And Jason appears. We see his boots and his jeans or overalls, I should say, uh, as he steps into a puddle and then walks across the street and goes to Alice's house. Cut to Alice asleep. This poor girl just suffers from a lot of nightmares. Not good nightmares, and I understand. So she's mid-nightmare, and we get the whole flashback of the ending of 
Friday the 13th part one. So we watch that, but then Alice awakes. And this is great. I think it's just really well done. I just love the use of silence in this. It's so quiet. And it's a lot of steady cam following handheld camera, just following Alice through her home. And we feel as if though either we're kind of like peeping Toms. It's very kind of creepy just following her as if it's, if we are Jason the killer following her around her house. And she gets up and goes to the bathroom and she's washing her face. She receives a phone call and it's mom. Mom's calling her, just checking in. She's just really insistent in telling her mom that I just have to put my life back together. And this is the only way I know how because her mother's really worried about her. And she's like, well, I need to just be on my own, doing my own thing right now because she's clearly still recovering from the events that happened. So she proceeds to disrobe. And that, again, nice, like creepy shot. We don't watch her get naked. We don't get 80s boobs at this point. We just see through the doorway, she's throwing her clothes onto the bed and then she gets into the shower and the phone rings again. But this time she, uh, she gets out of the shower, throws her robe on and no one's on the other end of the phone. Creepy. So she goes to the front door, puts the chain lock on the door. She hears rattling from outside the kitchen window. So she goes back into the kitchen. She takes an ice pick and goes to the window. Complete silence. And then the cat jumps through the window. And I was like, oh, Jonesy. That's all I could think. Because <laughs> like, it looks like the cat from Alien. That was my favorite scare. I was like, that did get me. You knew it was coming. Something was coming. Got me too. But it got me. So arguably the only real scare for me in this movie. She asks the cat if it wants something to eat. And she goes to the fridge, opens it. Oh my God, Mrs. Voorhees' severed head in her fridge. Are you kidding me? She screams. And who's there right behind her? Jason. Jason grabs her from behind, choking her, and shoves the ice pick into her temple. Brutal. And then Jason politely goes to the stove and takes the kettle off the hot stove burner and moves it to a cooler stove burner. Cut to title card. And that's it. It's great. It's just a great opening. I loved, I loved it. Oh my God, I'm, like, I'm freaking out. I'm knocking my mic over. I'm so excited about it. It's a lot of fun. It's very creepy because of the use of silence and the nice scare with the cat. And then, of course, uh, it's a great kill. It's one of my favorite kills. And it's really quick. They don't hold on it very long. And you have that look of shock on Alice's face. It's just really scary. And you see like a little tiny trickle of blood coming from her temple as the ice pick goes into her brain. Disgusting, but quick. Yeah, it is a very good opening scene. It does take its time. Mm-hmm. 20% of the movie takes place in this opening scene, and we're not even going to see Alice anymore after this. It was interesting to me watching this because, of course, a big thing back then with sequels is it would kind of recap what happened before. I think that's what I always loved about the Rocky movies because they would show the last fight at the beginning of the next movie. So you got to watch that fight again, and then it would take off into the movie. So with this... Seeing what happened to Alice before and then knowing still going through that trauma and then thinking she escaped it and gets killed. Such a bummer. Yeah. But what was confusing to me is because I watched these movies out of order. I know Jason's the killer. Did it make sense to the audience watching it the first time? Did they know that that was Jason who killed her? We know because we just know the story. But if you had seen this for the very first time ever, not knowing anything about the movies except for the first one, would you know that was Jason Voorhees that killed her at the end? You mean in the beginning? Yes. 
Yeah, uh, no, you wouldn't. You would not know it was him. Okay. I think part of the reason they put the flashback to the ending of the first film in the beginning of this film was to reacquaint you with who Jason was, that it was Mrs. Voorhees' son named Jason. And of course, to watch that really creepy nightmare sequence from the end of the movie. But you're supposed to be led down that path that this could be Jason. But still, no, you're right. You wouldn't know it was him because he's now 36 years old or whatever. So technically, we don't really know until the end when there's the reveal, which I don't want to get into right now. But I think we know once Paul tells the campfire tale. That's true. I think it's pretty clear. They're leading us down that path. It's pretty obvious that we're supposed to, at least supposed to think that it's him. But yeah, I do think the opening, it's a pretty good, it really takes time, really builds the tension. You're really not knowing where this is going. And you're thinking, oh, okay, it's going to be a continuation story with Alice. And she bites the dust there at the beginning. It's a good call. One of my favorite moments or scenes is a campfire scene. And I don't know why I butchered my own answer with when do, when do we know that this is possibly jason going around <laughs> killing everyone because it is paul and i think it's pretty much the first night when all the counselors are there and he tells them the story about camp crystal lake and what had happened and that's when we find out that alice went missing two months later so the opening took place technically august of 79 or september depending on how you want to do your math and she's never been found again They don't mention that it's Jason that did it, but just the whole lore of the Jason. And it does this big buildup of the counselors, the rest of the counselors just thinking it's a joke. And then all of a sudden we have Ted come out with this goofy mask and spear and scares the shit out of everyone. It got me too. I know it's a campfire. You know, it's supposed to be a scary story. You're not supposed to get scared at some point. But yeah, I definitely did a little herky jerk um, when he jumped out because I couldn't remember what they did at that point to get everyone but at this point we don't really know what's going on in the story but paul kind of fills us in and talks about you already talked about in the beginning quote what had happened i like that it kind of fills a nice little exposition because you got to have your camp buyer store anyway we're at a camp well technically a counselor training camp but it is still a camp way better to do it than through a campfire yeah i can't decide what's a better campfire like ghost story is it is it this or is it john candy in the great outdoors telling the story of oh that's true the bald bear yes (laughs) uh but no i was just reminiscing for a moment i love it man i was tempted to put the scene in as well because it's great setup and i think the actor that plays paul does a good job of delivering the legend to us and it's set up so this is the new lore that's being laid out for us. I appreciate that. I love that stuff. It's like, okay, now I see where they're going. So they're saying, is it a reach? Absolutely. When he's saying that Jason witnessed his mother being killed by Alice. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah, that would definitely set him off on a path of revenge. So yeah, I thought he did a good job telling the story. It is funny with Ted jumping out with the mask and the spear. I felt the same way because you knew it was coming. You were waiting for the story to end. And Paul kept saying one more sentence. And then he finally stopped. And you're like, are we going to get a scare? And then Ted jumps out. I was like, oh, yep. Okay. You sort of got me. Dang it. Good stuff, man. I've only got a couple more. I'm going to be honest. I'll just give you a preview real quick. They're going to be quick. I'm going to what I just call the Mark kill, as in the character Mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, this got me a little bit. Still, my favorite scare is, is Jonesy the cat in the beginning. <laughs> But this did get me a little bit because at this point now, this is cutting to about halfway through the movie, 
when, as Bill had mentioned earlier, we have a split, meaning half of the camp counselors in training have gone into town for beers. They like to say that a couple of times. They really put an emphasis on, we're going to get beers. <laughs> it's real funny. I'm like, yeah, beers. So half the uh, camp counselors have gone into town. Some have remained behind. And those that have remained behind are Jeff and Sandra. And we have Mark and Vicky. And Mark is in a wheelchair. We learn a little exposition here that he had a motorcycle accident, but is hopeful that he will regain use of his legs at some point. Vicky most clearly and obviously has a huge crush on Mark, has from the beginning. And this was, I was tempted to put in my complaints because I just wanted to smack Mark upside the head. I was just like, dude, pick up on the signs, pal. Read the room here. This girl is into you. And he just doesn't get it until the final moment when she really makes it abundantly clear. But at this point, they've remained behind and they are sitting at a table inside the cabin and they're playing one of those good old throwback to the 80s, early 80s, those handheld video games. He's got two of them. They belong to Ted, but Ted went into town, so he left them behind. Now, Mark and Vicky are playing. One is Pong, and the other handheld video game is hockey, and I believe they're playing hockey. Regardless, Vicky comes on real strong and says some line that doesn't even make sense, something like, uh, again, paraphrasing, something to the effect of, we should make this a competition. What's the challenge? What does the winner get? And she goes, position. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, like sexual position? What, is she, what do you mean position? Mark finally gets it. And he's all smiles. And she decides that she's going to go get ready and get all gussied up for him, whatever that means. So she leaves to go into her cabin and he remains behind. And so we get a couple other quick scenes in between after she leaves. We actually do watch her get prepared, but it cuts back to Mark. And she's been gone for a little while. And... He's a little curious as to what happened to her. So he ends up, you know, he's in his wheelchair and he goes outside to the walkway outside of the cabin and he's calling for her to no answer. And it just gets really silent and we know what's coming, right? He's next in line to get off. But we got this handsome guy just staring off into the distance. We get a close up on his face. Nothing happens. Then it cuts to the back of his head. We're like, oh my God, is it going to happen? Nothing happens. And then it cuts to his face. So we're in the front again. It's like, and he's just looking. Nothing's happening. He just keeps going back and forth. And you're like, oh, man, what the hell? And it really does kind of come out of nowhere because it finally cuts. There's a shot from behind. We're just looking at the back of his head. And it's just like this thud. This machete just comes in and it's so fast. goes right into Mark's forehead. And you literally hear him just go, oh. <laughs> and there's this fantastic shot of him rolling down the staircase of the cabin and then all of a sudden a giant staircase he goes rolling backwards and it looks pretty good you have to assume it's a dummy sitting in the chair for this shot but i thought it looked pretty good because it's raining and he's got this machete stuck in his head and he's rolling down this staircase backwards and then it freeze frames i love a good freeze frame because i'm a fan of miami vice so give me a good freeze frame and it just freezes on him with this machete in his forehead and it like goes whitewash. It whitewashes to a cut of Sandra back in the cabin upstairs moaning during sex with Jeff. So I thought that was kind of funny. But yeah, it was a good kill because of the, the machete coming out of nowhere right into Mark's forehead. It's pretty strong in the shot of him rolling down the uh, staircase. It was pretty good, I thought. So boom, bang, good stuff. Yeah, that's it, my complaints, but it is a good yeah. kill. <laughs> 
Yeah. And I get it. I would love to know how many takes it took for the wheelchair to go down those stairs without flipping over because it stays upright the whole time. I was impressed with that. So it's the physics of the whole thing don't really make any sense. It still works. I felt bad for Mark. That's all. Totally. Hey, if you stayed behind, you probably were not going to make it. My next favorite one is a kill and it's by Scott only because of all the counselors that we met. He was probably the one of you deserve to go, dude. <laughs> the first time we meet Scott and he's played by um, Russell Todd. He's a good looking guy, but he's kind of like got those creepy vibes. Mm-hmm. And we see Terry walking around in her shorty shorts and her Mickey Mouse crop top. And he's got a slingshot and he shoots her in the butt with it. And he's got a thing for her. But he's going after her like he's it's a kindergarten or something. I'm like, dude, totally. what are you doing? I mean, I know you're into her. Man up and talk to her. So later on, when Terry goes to go skinny dipping and she leaves her clothes on the beach, he takes them and runs off with them. And then when she comes out of the water, he's like, hi, I got your clothes. Ha ha. And then she's got to chase chase him around naked in the woods. I'm like, she's got to run around barefoot in the wo- Who knows what she's going to step on? I just thought he was a dick. So I'm like, if you're a dick, you deserve to die. And sure enough, <laughs> he's running away back up into the camp. And he gets caught in, I think it's supposed to be a bear, tra- bear trap. Not a bear trap or a rabbit yeah, trap. Yeah, I was trying to, is it called like a, it's like a deadfall sort of trap. But it's also just... I guess, as according to what I read, just called a rope trap. You're walking along and you step inside a noose that yanks your leg up and, you fall, and then you're hanging upside down. So he gets caught in that. Now he's hanging upside down and he asks Terry for help. And Terry's kind of pissed about what happened, but she, you know she's not going to leave him there. So I don't think I would leave him either. So she's got to go back to the cabin to get something to cut him down with. And while he's hanging there, here comes Jason. And we get his <laughs> first official machete kill and he just right it was, it was so weird because we had the close-up of scott and he sees the machete going past him and he just stays quiet i don't understand why he doesn't say anything he has no reaction but he's yeah. not going to say anything anyway because jason uses the slight slice his throat he just bleeds out at that point i thought it was a good kill it was a deserving kill not that i'm saying someone deserves to be killed but yeah don't mess with terry you're gonna get it and then of course terry comes back to cut him down and she makes a joke if you pull something like that, I'll kill you. Well, he's already dead. And then he had his back to her. So when she spins him around, that's when she knows this throat's cut. She starts screaming, but too late for her. Jason's right there. We don't see what happens to her, but we do see her body later on in the movie. Great stuff, man. It's a fun scene. And I do like, again, any kind of inventiveness, right? I mean, this is early 80s, and I, of course, hadn't seen many of these films, many of these films, if any. But you see when, you know, when he steps into the rope trap, that's cool. Why it was set there, I don't know who put it. Was that, did Jason set that trap? I don't know, I guess. Regardless, of course, I love the whole setup of the whole thing because we have, we get full frontal nudity in this. Oh, yeah. Kirsten Baker, credit to her as an actress. She She went for it. She's quite beautiful but she goes skinny dipping and we see it all but then uh my complaint with the scene is though when she runs off to find a knife to cut him down to cut scott down she comes out with a swiss army knife i'm just skipping ahead to complaints you got to cut through a thick rope i don't think the swiss army knife's gonna do it so 25 minutes (laughs) and that's how scott should have died is that it took her an hour to cut him down and all the blood rushed to his head and he passed out and died. Good stuff, man. 
Good call. Good call. I'm going with my uh, final favorite scene with another kill, but it's really the setup that I found fun and got, I have to admit, it got me a little bit. I didn't lose my mind, but it got me a little bit. But this is Vicky's death scene. So we, we know that Mark got the machete to the head and we see Vicky as she has gone to prepare for her, what we assume to be sexual encounter. She's changed her panties for some reason. She went with the brown instead of the black. I'm not sure that was a good choice, but that was her choice. And she sprays perfume all over herself and, and on her vagina, which was just a nice touch. You know, she wants to <laughs> smell good everywhere. So she's all prepped and ready to go. And she returns to the main cabin, but Mark's not there. And she's Mark, Mark. And she looks up the staircase and I'm like, Vicky, Mark's in a wheelchair. Don't think he's upstairs. So there's a complaint. <laughs> Just doing all my complaints right now in all my scenes, favorite scenes. But uh, she does proceed upstairs and finally is like, Jeff, Sandra, Jeff, Sandra. And she goes into uh, to their room where they had previously been making love. And the room is dark. And she sees two bodies underneath the, sh- the white sheet, assuming that they have passed out. They're sleeping underneath the seat. And there is a little trickle of blood on the sheet. So that's suspicious. And she creeps closer to the sheet. And I immediately, for like, I'm just a dummy, just not thinking outside of the box at all, really thought it was just Jeff and Sandra underneath the sheet. But Vicky gets close. She's like, Sandra, Sandra. And all of a sudden, who comes out from underneath the sheet? But it's Jason in his burlap sack. That creepy sack over his head, man. That does scare me a bit. It's just a creepy image. So he was lying under the sheet with Sandra, comes out with a giant kitchen knife in his hand and approaches Vicky and she starts screaming and then she's backed against the wall next to the door and she looks to her right and who's hanging by the another bed sheet there, but that's Jeff and Jeff is dead. There's actually a pretty decent kill scene of both Sandra and Jeff previous to this. They're dead and now Vicky's about to be dead because Jason slowly, like literally two miles an hour, walks up to Vicky with the knife and she screams and then he stabs her to death. But we don't see it. Like, there's just not a lot of gore, gore in this movie. That's why I said it initially that they kind of feels like they were holding back for that R rating. So for me, it was more of the kind of surprise of Jason being underneath the bedsheet instead of Jeff. I like that touch. Yeah, that is a good little scare. I don't think I remember that one either. But same as you, when she's going up the stairs, like, who are you looking for upstairs? Obviously not Mark. Right. Terrible. But yeah, then you think it's usually your your classic. She'll run into the dead bodies of Jeff and Jeff Sa- and Sandra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She pulls the sheet back. They're both dead underneath. She freaks out, turns around, and Jason's in her face. Right. But that's not what happens. No. Nope. So good little misdirection on that one. All right. So for my final favorite scene or moment, it was just a reveal of what was in the shack. Because earlier in the movie, we have Sandra and Jeff try to sneak over to Camp Crystal Lake to see what is over there. And they get caught by the police and the police take them back to Paul. And, you know, Paul's like, all right, they went over there. They did it. I'll make sure that, you know, no one goes over there again. And then the officer's all upset because of what happened five years ago. And officer tells Paul they don't like the fact that someone's even there working around the lake. He's upset that Paul doesn't seem that upset about it and is not chastising Jeff and Sandra for going over there or punishing them. But Paul decides he'll just take away their dessert. So the the cop leaves, and when he's driving back down the road, he sees 
a body run across the street. Well, not street, but the dirt path. And at this point, we know it's Jason, and he goes to give chase for some reason. I don't know why. And while going after him, we come across this huge, like, shack. Just like a dinghy shack. It's all spare parts. It's got windows and everything. And the sheriff goes in there, and he makes his way through. It's almost like a kind of almost like a maze. And we see him enter this one room, and his eyes widen. He's like, oh, my God. But before we get to see what it is... The sheriff gets a hammer to the back of the head. So he dies. We have no idea what he saw. It's like, damn it. So later in the movie, when we get to our final girl, which is Ginny, she's running through the woods. And we notice she's kind of following the same path that the officer ran earlier. She comes upon the shack and she goes in thinking, that someone's in there that can help her, not knowing that it is Jason's shack. And while she's running through, she goes to that room, and we finally get to see what it is. And it's basically a little altar with uh, Mrs. Voorhees on it and all these candles. And we see the dead body of Alice, who's still got the ice pick in the side of her head, the officer that got killed earlier. And now we know that Terry has been killed. So it was a kind of a surprise that you know, here it is five years later, still keeping the preserved head, a la Psycho. And she's in trouble because this is not a refuge. This is, she just went into the heart of the killer's habitat. And now she's got to figure her way out of it. So it was, it was a good little reveal. I did like it. I was not expecting that. Totally agree. I think it's always creepy when you know or realize that the killer has a lair I like that reveal. I like that idea. And that he has this creepy shrine that he's constructed. And at the top of it, of course, the severed head of his mother, but then like a pile of bodies surrounding it. Yeah. Pretty dark. It certainly is. Anything else for scenes? Uh, nope. That's it for me. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, so let's move on to Swiss cheese or complaints. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have spear holes. Yes, if it doesn't have those spear holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. Jason, what do you got for complaints or Swiss cheese? I'm going to go into Jeff and Sandra's introduction right near the beginning of the film after the cold open. I just had, it was fun. It was fun returning to Camp Crystal Lake and being in town and seeing the package store and the gas station. And we know we're in familiar territory with Crazy Ralph appearing as well. But it just started right away with the fact that 
they run to a payphone because they're supposed to meet their friend Ted before going to the actual lakeside where the cabins are for their counselor training. And they run to a payphone to call Ted. Jeff gets on the you know the phone and is talking to him. He says, uh, hey, are you going to come down and pick us up? And then obviously not because he then goes, okay, well, give us directions. Great. Crazy Ralph shows up. He leaves. And then all of a sudden we see in the background that Jeff's pickup truck is being towed away. Sandra notices this. So they freak out and they run after the truck. And this is fun because I understand running alongside the truck and yelling at the tow truck driver and going, hey, that's my truck. Stop it. Drop it. Hey, asshole. That's what he yells at him. And I give a lot of credit to Jeff here because he keeps running after the tow truck. I'm like, dude, the truck is driving away. How are you just going to keep running? So Jeff and Sandra follow the tow truck all the way up the hill and around the corner to Ted's house. Ted's right there. He's living right around the corner from the package store to the gas station. So I had a lot of questions. I was just like, wait a minute. How did you not know? First of all, you're going to Camp Crystal Lake and you're meeting up with your friend Ted and you stop to call him from a payphone, which is right around the corner from where Ted's live lives. So you didn't know that he lived right there. Okay, I'm just going to go with that. Then you run after the tow truck all the way up the hill around the corner, which I thought was a, kind of a reach. Why are you running after a, a truck? You're going to get away from it. You can't keep up with the truck. Those were just some questions I had with that opening. I, th- I thought I had more, but maybe that was it. I had some issues with the logic in that. Yeah, that was kind of interesting, too, because when the scene first played out, I mean, they're in that parking spot for, I don't even know if they're illegally parked, to be honest. And run over to the payphone, and and the tow truck shows up right away. I'm like, what the fuck Yo, is happening? This is some right. kind of this is a totally different movie. It's like a wrong turn or or something like that. Well, that also begs the question: is that they've just showed up in town, and then we know that Ted, who lives around the corner, their buddy, has is playing a practical joke on them by sending his uncle, who's a tow truck driver, to go tow their truck. So Ted knew they were going to park right there and had the tow truck ready to go. Oh, yeah. This is all way too easy. And it's it's still fun, but it's like, how did they, how, what? I, I was just, a I would confused. love to hire that guy as a tow truck driver, though. I mean, that was fast. He got there real quick. If you ever had your car towed, it's usually like a 45 minute process. You did it in five minutes. I'm like, that's a tow truck driver. You'd be making some bank. Yeah. Good call. What do you have, man? What What are your complaints? Oh, this is my biggest complaint. They killed Crazy Ralph, Jason. I know. You know how much stuck. I love Crazy Ralph. I <laughs> wanted to. I want to be Crazy Ralph. I want to work at Universal at the Friday Thirteenth Maze and be Crazy Ralph. So the fact that they killed him that was a gut punch. I did not like that at all. Yeah, that's just, just unnecessary. A I want Crazy Ralph to show up in every movie and tell everybody they're doomed. Right. You're doomed. Doomed. I tell you. Good stuff. Hurts. Just hurts. Uh, I'm jumping all the way to the end for my next complaint, actually. Uh, Now, we have the whole, basically the whole fight sequence between, it starts with, this is the whole finale. So it's Ginny and Paul versus Jason Voorhees. When Ginny and Paul have come back from downtown, they were partying, drinking it up with Ted at the bar. Ted stayed back in town. Ginny and Paul come home. 
to a dark house. They don't understand, or actually the lights are still on. And then they're like, why would they have left the lights on? They go upstairs, don't see anything except for a giant pile of blood on the bed. Come back downstairs. Now the lights are off. And Ginny's like, there's someone here, someone here. And Jason comes out of nowhere with the spear, barely missing Paul and ends up in a, like a wrestling match with Paul on the ground. We don't know what happens to Paul. He's just somehow knocked unconscious, I guess. But I don't remember exactly where it happened. But Ginny goes into the back of the cabin where we know that from earlier there's a chainsaw. And she grabs the chainsaw and ends up slicing Jason just a little bit. And he falls over and she smashes him on the back with a wooden chair and he's knocked unconscious. unconscious. And then she just leaves. And that's a huge frustration for me, Bill Bant, in these movies. Because, A, first of all, not a great use of the chainsaw. I was really hoping for a really good chainsaw kill. And this was just a quick slice, and that's it. And now, knocking the villain out, the killer out, and then just leaving him there is a big thing for me. Big issue for me, instead of just finishing him off right then and there. Because it also happened at the end of part one. When Alice is beating the crap out of Mrs. Voorhees and keeps knocking her out and keeps running off instead of finishing her off. And I'm just like, dude, you got him down. You got the killer down. Take him out or make sure he's unconscious or tie him up, whatever it is. But don't just leave him there and go running off into the forest. But again, that's how these movies go. Right. So I understand. I get it, folks. I get it. It's camp. It's exaggerated. It's ridiculous. But those were some issues I had with the beginning of this whole finale between Ginny, that's G-I-N-N-Y, Ginny, and Jason. Yeah, that's a good complaint. It's a classic complaint of you knocked the killer out. Why don't you go finish him off or her off? And I thought about that when we did Slumber Party Massacre last week because there is a scene when Russ comes into the bedroom and... And one of the girls hits him with the bat and then they go to run. And I'm thinking to myself, just finish him off. But then this really made me think about it going into this movie <laughs> is if, if I'm in that situation, I'm now being asked to kill someone to take someone's life. It's a lot easier said than done. It's so thinking point. I have that person knocked out should be good enough. Right. So I would always say that's a common complaint too. But now, now, now that we're doing this and I think about it, I have to be a little bit more, I don't know, cautious about thinking, is it really that easy to turn around and kill someone? Because I agree. I mean, she probably could have killed him with a chainsaw if it did not cut out on her, like bad timing on that. Mm-hmm. And her goal was thinking that knocked out to get in the car and drive off. So she would have been safe if she actually could fulfill her plan. But of course, the car, which is a piece of shit that they established earlier, wouldn't start. So, yes, I would normally say just kill him. But can you really do it? I think that's a great point. Something I thought of as well is the only the way you can justify that simply is if you've already knocked out the killer, you knocked him unconscious to then murder him would be doing so in cold blood. Right. You know, it's like, so would you have the wherewithal to do that? Would you have the balls to do that with a good conscience thinking, oh, I've already knocked them unconscious. Now I'm going to kill them. Now I'm going to murder them. Does that make 
you just as bad as the killer, you know? Right. Cause then uh, what are so the consequences of your action? Right. And ha- you got to live with that. So I think the issue still though, for me is that you have to make sure that the killer is incapacitated, that they can't get back up. You have to either tie their hands behind their back or lock them in a room, whatever it is. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to think of like, if it was me and my kids and someone's coming after us, I could probably justify myself killing that person. But if it was just me, once I think I have them down, I would probably stop there. You know, it just, I think it just depends on the circumstances. And I think it's really tough to ask, to ask a 23 year old woman to then murder. I got you. Even though it's self-defense. Yeah. And to be, if we're really, I love this. No, no, I'm sorry. No, no, no. no. This is, I, I was thinking too, though, you know, you really entertain the scenario, right? If you're in that person's shoes. Because also it's fight or flight. When in these situations, when it's so heightened and you're freaking the f out, and somebody just tried to kill you and you disabled them somehow, most likely you will you'll run. Right. Instead of sticking around, going, "What's the logical thing to do here? I should further incapacitate this person, throw them in a closet, lock the door, or find some rope and tie their hands. What if they come back? You know, what if they awaken in the midst of tying their hands together?" What then, especially if it's like a, a six foot two, 250 pound dude versus a 23 year old young girl. See, here we go. Here we go. Thinking too much about it. Anyway, it still frustrates me. Yeah, yeah. You know, the killer's going to get back up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Virginia doesn't know he's going to show up in a whole bunch of more movies and kill lots of more people. And I just, I just wanted more from the chainsaw. And also uh, speaking of underused weapons towards the very, very end, Jason at some point comes at them with a pitchfork. I think that's at in the Jason's lair, actually, and it gets chopped in half, and Ginny has the pitchfork. And I was just, we needed a pitchfork kill. You don't yeah. get a good pitchfork kill. You got to use the pitchfork. We got You got the tools here. You just got to use them. But that's the thing. She tries to do the kill shot when Jason could possibly kill Paul. That's the circumstance. Right. That's what it takes for her to actually yeah. try to kill him. Yeah, I understand, Bill. All right. So my, uh, my other complaint is uh yeah that jason killed mark and vicky before they had sex i was kind of bummed about that uh, i mean <laughs> yeah mark was oblivious to vicky's advances and i'd laugh because i'm like you know what i'm sure if i was mark i'd be i'd be just stupid because that's the way i was but a vicky you took way too long i'm like i get it you want to freshen up a little bit change underwear that's fine but then she's putting on a whole other outfit these clothes are coming off in five minutes you don't have to put on something pretty just just swap out the underwear, perfume, get back in there. You've been wanting him that bad. Why Why are you taking so long to get ready? I agree. Yes, and I, I definitely, I, I. that's a great complaint. It's hilarious. I wanted that for Mark. I yeah. definitely, seemed like the equipment was still working. And yeah. and isn't that supposed to be the rules anyway in these horror movies? They're supposed to be, the, you know, they're supposed to have sex rules. first. Sex first. You get killed either during the act or right after. Mm-hmm. But not before they even get a chance to have some sexy time. Yeah. But I found this in the research and I think it's really funny because we make fun of the fact that the character Mark is so oblivious to Vicky's advances. But according to the trivia, Lauren Marie Taylor, who plays Vicky really had a real life crush on the actor, Tom McBride, who plays Mark. He's a good looking guy. He's very good looking, like super handsome. He looks like Superman. He does. But their relationship didn't come to fruition as it was discovered that Tom McBride was gay. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think really my only, my last complaint 
is that at the end, it's somewhat interesting. I like the idea that Ginny, it's been set up in the film that Ginny is, is studying to be a child psychologist, correct? Is that what she's been going to school for? Oh, is she right. in, the, in the So she has, at this point, kind of bought into this legend of, of Jason Voorhees. And she's not aware that anyone has been killed yet. She's currently in town at the bar with Paul and Ted throwing back some beers and she starts in She's very sympathetic her, for him. Yeah. Right. Her hypothesis. She does like a, a hypothetical clinical diagnosis of Jason. She goes into a story of how if Jason were at this point, let's say 30, uh, two, 33 years old and she, and he witnessed the murder of his mother that would most likely send him into this downward spiral. How, what a psychological effect it would have on him. And she does have kind of, from a clinical point of view, some empathy or sympathy for him. So that plays into the, the very end, the finale, when she gets into Jason's lair and then the reveal of his shrine with the severed head of the mother. And not only has Jason kept his mother's severed head at the top of this shrine he's constructed, but has also kept her sweater that we saw she wore at the end of the first film. And then Ginny sees the sweater and thinks, okay, I'm going to use this against Jason. If he is the psychotic, crazed, deranged killer, if I put on his mother's sweater, maybe he will think that I am her because obviously he has a real obsession with his mother. So she dons the sweater and pretends and starts speaking to Jason as his mother to get him to acquiesce, to calm down. And it works, at least temporarily. And I was like, okay, it's a little, it's a little far-fetched because it's like she doesn't do much else but put on the sweater. Still looks quite like Ginny, you know? And of course, the whole illusion is broken when she steps to the side for whatever reason, and Jason sees the severed head of his mother. He's like, oh, yeah, you're not my mom. My mom's still dead. There's her head. If I were to be like really nitpicky about it, it's like, wow, this is a real reach. I guess it kind of makes sense. Is it cool? I thought it was a good idea. It was a good idea. She figures that out to do that way too quick. And I do love there yeah. is a, there is that one shot where she's looking at the severed head and trying to get her hair to match. Um, yeah, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. From five years ago. <laughs> Hair has probably changed just a little bit since then. Great stuff. Did you have any more complaints? No, I think I'm good. It's time to move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this right. segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. Who do we choose this week? All right, Bill Bant. Well, this week we chose Stu Charno. Who plays Ted? Because he was the only actor I recognized immediately. Yep. Outside of, of course, Crazy Ralph, because we knew him from the previous movie. But yeah, I saw Ted. I was like, hey, it's that guy. It's that actor. So this was Stu Charno's first, excuse me, Stu or Stuart Charno's first film role. He is known as an actor and a writer, as it turns out. But as an actor, he's known for Friday the 13th Part 2 here in 1981. Uh, He was in an episode of M.A.S.H., and an episode of Fame in 82 also. He played the character of Vanderberg in Christine in 1983. And we, of course, know and love him as the character Harold Reptile Sherpico 
in Just One of the Guys, which we covered on this very podcast. That's what I recognized him from. He was also the cabin boy vampire in Once Bitten in 1985, and he would go on to have several more TV appearances uh, in shows such as Freddy's Nightmares, The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones, Hollywood Follies, and The X-Files. And according to IMDb, it appears that he kind of hung it up around 2011 as an actor. But fun fact, he was a writer on three episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation from 91 to 92. Uh, he has a story by credit on those episodes entitled The Wounded, New Ground, and Ethics for you Star Trek fans out there. Uh, Stewart was also a stand-up comic. So yeah, he has the dubious honor of being one of the few male characters to survive in an original Friday the 13th movie. As uh, we see him drinking at the bar, flirting with the bartender in town, and he never comes back after that. All right, moving on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Friday the 13th Part 2? Well, following the release of Friday the 13th Part 1 in 1980, Adrian King, played Alice, had numerous encounters with an obsessive fan. The situation escalated into a stalker case, and she decided to avoid any further acting opportunities. She has not done any on-screen film work since, but has done voiceover work on several films more than 15 years later. Yeah, and that's a crazy story, too, with her involvement in this movie. She initially, I guess, didn't want to do it, and then she said she was going to, and they didn't send her the script. Right. And then when she arrived on set, that's when she found out she was going to die, and they had already filmed most of the movie at that point. So she was like one of the last remaining scenes of the film, and I think she only did two days' work. I think that's right. Yeah, it's in the research. It's really funny to read the fact that she shows up and she's like, most of the crew had gone home. Right. She's like, where is everybody? What's going on? I had no idea that she her character was dying. So as we know, in the first Friday, the 13th movie, the special effects were done by uh, Tom Savini and did some excellent work and would move on to a prolific career. Unfortunately, Tom was unavailable for part two, so they turned to uh, Stan Winston to deliver the effects for part two, which would have been amazing, but unfortunately a scheduling conflict and Stan had to back out. So they hired a young Carl Fullerton who did the uh, effects and actually made the prosthetic of the adult Jason that jumps through the window at the end. He did that in one day and came up with that concept. After a decade of doing gore movies, Carl moved on to the A-list of Hollywood makeup artists with such films as Glory, The Godfather Part 3, Signs of the Lambs, and Philadelphia. How about that? I love that. Good old Stan Winston. Goes back a ways. Yeah. Uh, good stuff. Makeup was pretty good. All right. So the shot of the infamous double impalement was cut to avoid an X rating. Yet there is still a photo circulating of the center shot, which I think appears on the back of the video cassette was that on the one that you looked at jason you know what i was paying attention to the text i didn't the look at the there were really small thumbnails of the images and i couldn't make them out so i didn't know i couldn't tell gotcha so the footage of the censored portion was finally recovered in 2020 from a old vhs of the gore shots from carl fulton who kept in his portfolio because most of that ended up being destroyed because the producers would go to find out that Sandra, uh, Marta Kober, was underage. And um, there were some nude portions of that. So they had to cut all that stuff out anyway. And in order to cut it from 
an X to an R. They just even had to cut out the violence because I think you literally see the spear go through the back of Jeff. So all that stuff had to be cut out and they thought they had destroyed it all. But yeah, Carl just happened to have a copy of it on VHS somewhere. Again, it felt as though, like I said, they were holding back with a lot of the violence and gore in this. I mean, it's plenty violent, but not that gory. And I was tempted to actually put that kill in my favorite scenes because I do think it's inventive. It's kind of a twist on what happens in the first movie when the classic sequence when Kevin Bacon lying on the bed and the knife comes or the spear. The arrow, yeah. The arrow, yeah, excuse me. Thank you. The arrow comes through his neck. In this version, it's a twofer. It's two for one. You get the spear that goes both through Jeff and Sandra. So I thought that was, but just kind of a reverse situation. And you get two kills in one. So interesting bit of trivia. This relates to the hole that we were kind of talking about with the lore. The plot of part two shocked most people associated with the original film. Betsy Palmer, Tom Savini, and Sean S. Cunningham all have made public remarks about how stupid it was that Jason was alive the whole time. And if he was, then why didn't he just tell his mother that he was alive, which would have avoided all the murders in part one? I I think we kind of figured that out. I like what we came up with. Yeah. He might not even recognize that was his mom. Who knows? All these years later. So the first Jason scene in the movie is a shot of Jason's legs walking across the street towards Alice's house. This is the only time in the series Jason was played by a woman, Ellen Lutter, who was the film's costume designer. And then it comes to find out there's actually five, technically five different Jasons in this movie. Wow. Yeah, I'd read that. Yeah, she was the only woman that portrayed Jason. But uh, that's cool. Five different people. Mm -hmm. All right. This is my last bit. Let's see if I can uh, get through this without stumbling. Okay. Stu Charno, our Hey, It's That actor, played Ted. This sequel's comic relief character, much like the original Friday the 13th's Ned, who was played by Mark Nelson. Then in part four, the final chapter, Lawrence Monison portrayed another comic relief character named Ted. The Friday films consistently reused character names throughout the series, there were two Pauls, two Terrys, two Sandras, two Vickies, two Scots, two Marks, and that's just from this sequel. There were three Tinas, parts four, five, and seven, two Robins, two Joeys, two Eddies, and an Ed. All right, my last one is the lead character, Ginny Field, was named after Virginia Field, who was the production designer on both the first two Friday the 13th films. Oh. They really do the research on the names for these movies. <laughs> Love it. Time to move on to box office. So Friday the 13th Part 2 was released on May 1st, 1981 in 1,350 theaters. On an estimated budget of $1.3 million, it grossed $21.7 million domestically. It debuted number one at the box office with $6.4 million and was the 35th highest grossing movie domestically in the U.S. in 1981, outgrossing other notable films such as Nighthawks, Blowout, and Victory, which we have covered on this show. Moving on to reviews, when growing up in the early 80s, we would watch sneak previews starring Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips of upcoming movies. Their review of Friday the 13th was not surprising. It was unanimous, two thumbs down. They both hate it, Friday the 13th Part 2. Their review actually offered no movie clips from the movie except for the trailer because the studio wouldn't release anything. Roger called it an unpleasantly, absolutely reprehensible 
Little Sleaze Pit of a Movie. This movie is made for people who hate movie audiences. Gene called it depressing. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 29% and has an IMDb rating of 6.1. So it takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions you have about Friday the 13th Part 2? Well, Bill Bant, uh, there's a few questions in one here. Uh, I would understand cordoning off or, or blocking off an area where a horrific series of crimes had occurred just to maybe prevent foot traffic or tourists or true crime fanatics desecrating the natural land and like forestation here in this particular sequence because it is forest like on, on a lake. But my question is, what is the real harm in kids trespassing on that land like in this fiction or like why is it condemned? Because we get our deputy who seems really adamant about people not trespassing on this particular land. We know that five years previous, obviously, horrible things happened. Seven camp counselors were killed. But why is the land condemned? That is a good question. Because even after five years of neglect, the cabins would still be pretty good shape, I would think. If it was 20 years ago, yeah, they could probably go in the cabin, wood rotting, fall on them, get hurt. But at that point, it just seems that whole area just leaves such a bad taste in the townspeople's mouths. Yeah. Just stay away from it and just don't want anything to do with it. That's a, that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, and it, I mean, if it's that bad, I mean, you could just mow down the cabins if you want, just want to get rid of the whole thing. True. And just plant some new trees or whatever it is. I don't know. I was just, I was just again, just going down a rabbit hole, just thinking of weird things. Uh, but it was just curious to me as to why you're not allowed on the land at all when it's not as if over the past five years, bad things keep happening. It mm-hmm. just, there was, the, according to them, that what they know, only that one particular thing happened. Although, I guess it, there was something that happened back in 57 or 58. But anyway. I think if they could just dig it out and get rid of it. Right. Just tear would. down the cabins. Yeah. Yeah. My, my only question is, just with Alice in the beginning, it's after the events that happened in the first one. And we don't know, even after the first, where Alice came from to get there. Because... You know, you had the hikers and they were all coming there trying to find this place. So, you know, these tragic events happen. She happens to survive. But then she lives close enough to where it happened that Jason can track her down. Like, how did that happen? And why would you even want to stay in that area after that? Absolutely right. I mean, sometimes you don't have a choice, but it just seems like she moved out of her parents to be on her own. And why would you, I don't know, why would you stay somewhere that close? And I totally agree. It's a great point. And obviously it must be somewhat close if Jason was able to find her mm-hmm. on foot. Right. Or maybe it is far because it took two months after the event. So maybe he was walking for a month, a month and a half to track we're, her down. We're, we're just filling in all these holes. I I know, we're it. trying to. We're trying to. We're trying to make this work for everyone. <laughs> but I agree. Either move across the country or move out of the country. Mm-hmm. And then the whole, even the whole thing with the sack. Like the sack was a cool look. But I would think yeah. if I'm tacking, I would just pull on that. Because, it. I mean, it was the tiniest eye hole. That had to be the right. perfect spot to see out of. If I just give that thing a little yank, he can't see shit. <laughs> and then by the time he adjusts to try to find the hole again, I'm long gone. There you go. That's my thoughts. Yank got- on the one eye hole. Yeah. <laughs> got anything else? Yeah, this will be my, my last series of questions all okay. tied into one another. So some of these you can't answer, but we don't know how Terry was killed. That's a question. Right. How was she killed? She doesn't look that bad. So it's not like you even see when she's lying there, but in the pile, you don't yeah, see no any blood. Kind of, no, maybe strangled. I'm going to go strangled. 
Even though that's uh, not really his ML, but right, right. Would have loved to known what happened to Ted. That would have been great if like he just came back in every sequel, but that doesn't happen. Right. What happened to Paul? Because that leads into another question I'll have here. Because uh, you know, well, supposedly the entire. Let's just say you know. Well, it'll just actually lead into my final question here. Yeah, so go ahead. What do you assume happened at the very end? Because I'm assuming it was a another dream suite sequence that's supposed to somewhat mirror the ending of the first film. That's exactly so what, what ends, I think. Right. So once you feel that Paul and Ginny are cornered in a room and it's Jason at the door and then they're ready to attack when Jason comes in, Paul slowly opens the door and it turns out to be Muffin at the door. And then we see behind Ginny, that's the big scare at the end with Jason coming through the window and grabbing Ginny. And now he's not wearing the burlap sack and we see it's really is Jason. We see his deformed face. And then it just cuts to Ginny on a gurney and the EMTs are wheeling her towards the ambulance, put her in the ambulance and drive off and the movie's over. So we don't know what happened to Paul. Did he survive? So we assume if it was a just a dream sequence or a nightmare that Ginny had, then Jason didn't really attack in that final scene, that he was still just injured from her slicing through his shoulder with a machete from the scene just that happened just previous to that. But just wanted to get any thoughts on that because we don't then know what happened. Okay, here's here's my theory and I just came up with it right now. So we have Ginny goes to the cabin, the makeshift cabin, and she's about to get killed by Jason and Paul comes in to the rescue and we have that scene when the roof kind of collapses and she gets the machete and she tries to save Paul by slicing Jason's head off but instead sticks it in his shoulder. Right. So when that happens... Jason falls forward and the machete impales Paul. So she has a psychotic snap. Uh-huh. And then she thinks of this happy ending that her and Paul are okay with Muffin. And then Ted comes back and finds her and calls the ambulance. And then she uh-huh. gets whisked away. That's great. I love it. Absolutely. That's well thought out. And I think that's the other question that is an answer, obviously. Not only what happened to Ted, but all the other counselors that went into town that night. Because... They didn't come back in time to witness all these events happen with Jason because that could have happened very quickly after, you know, Ginny and Paul come back. The other counselors are dead. The rest of them are back in town when this whole attack from Jason happens. That unfolds. But then, yeah, if Ted came back and found Ginny beaten and battered, calls the ambulance. But I think also the other clear clue that this is a nightmare that Ginny is having is the fact that Muffin shows up because we know that Muffin's dead. Correct. Or there just happens to be another dog that looks just like that one. And right. the chance of that happening, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. Just wanted to talk it through. But it does leave some questions. Like you yes. just go, okay, well, wait, where's Paul and where is everybody else? And Certainly anticipating watching the third one now to get these answers. Is Jason still alive? Yes. Let's move on to our ratings. So on a scale of one to five machetes, what do you give Friday the 13th part two? I'm giving this two and a half machetes. Two and a half, two point five machetes for me. Uh, movie's just okay, you know. Uh, I'm not sure that it will be that memorable for me, but how can I really honestly say that when I just watched it? 
because I can remember it today. But anyway, it's still fun. I, it has moments. It's ridiculous. The concept and the feel of a camper cabin in the woods and a stalker wearing a burlap sack on his head is always scary. So and it is a, a cool premise. I do like the addition of the lore and the story of Jason, the legend of Jason and him still being alive. Uh, there are some fun kills with some creative inventiveness, but I don't know, could use a little more logic or lore building, maybe just clean it up a little bit, plug some of the holes, but then I guess it wouldn't be as ridiculously fun, would it? Could have used some more uh, like outright scares for me, just really, really good scares. But uh, so then it just ended up being kind of average, just kind of meh for me. So I gave it 2.5. Yeah, I'm giving it three. I just kind of like how it continues the story for the first one, sets the building blocks for the future series with Jason. From here on out, it's, well, except for part five, Jason is our main antagonist through these movies. Yeah, kind of, you know, it, it kind of sets the building blocks for what we're going to see on here on out. People are going to show up at the lake and Jason is just going to take him down. So I think it's one of the kind of forgotten sequels, it seems like, because like I said, every, everyone wants to see Hockey Mask, Jason. But yeah, I do like Burlap right. Jason. <laughs> so I'll go three. Okay, three machetes for you, Bill Bant. And I wanted to mention this because I would be remiss if I didn't. And I don't think I mentioned this when we covered the first part of Friday the 13th. Being that one of my earliest memories is just the name Jason. The fact that this killer, who is now just such a part of popular culture, is named Jason. I used to get references all the time and still do. This just happened not too long ago when I told someone that my name was Jason. I was introducing myself and they're like, oh yeah, like Jason Voorhees, like the Friday the 13th guy. That still happens to me to this day, just because my name happens to be Jason. People make the association. Mm -hmm. That's just how popular Jason Voorhees is. All right. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. If you want to reach out, please email us at all80smoviespodcast.gmail.com. For our next episode, our Splatter Cinema Month continues with Fright Night, starring Chris Randon, William Ragsdale, Amanda Fierce, and Roddy McDowell. You can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. I told the others. They didn't believe me. You're all doomed. You're all doomed. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>